0: People, This is Mordecai Joseph. We're now in Tech 34, 3 4. And last time we left you with uh, chapter 49 in Genesis. And we're going back to it, so we can have a little bit of a background before we continue. And in Genesis chapter 49 we read in verse 1, And Jacob called his sons and said, Gather together that I may tell you what shall befall you in the last days. In other words, God makes it very plain. A God is going to be, being the God of Abraham and Isaac and Israel, and then all the generations of Israel, he's going to be with them until the last days. In other words, he'll never leave them, nor forsake them. In spite of all that was going to transpire in between, all their sins and iniquities, all the rebellion, all the captivities, all the judgment, all the punishment, and including in between, even the killing of his very son, the one that dealt with them on a personal basis, that walked with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and came to Mount Sinai and married Israel and came in the flesh and dwelt in their midst, came to his own and they rejected him and crucified him, along with all the other uh, involved parties, which included in essence representatives of all mankind and in the, in the, in the person you might say of uh, Rome, The empire of the the nations that was made, though it was uh, based in Rome, the armies are made of many, many nations, and so in essence they are are, uh, included in that sense, all the nations of the earth, in the responsibility for the crucifying of of the God that died for the sins of all of mankind, not only for the sins of Israel. Not only for the sins of Judah. So the ones responsible for it is every single one of us who has ever sinned. Some people like to put the blame only on one party. And that's hypocrisy and bigotry. Anyway, in spite of that event, yet God is looking at this point, way down, many centuries later on, and he's still in essence saying by these words that he's going to speak not through Jacob, that he will never leave his people, never reject them. They will always be his church, his people, and he will always be their God. And so this is Jacob speaking by inspiration from God himself, and this is what he's saying. And he's telling them, you gather together here that I may tell you what shall be for you in the last days. Now, how does he know it? Well, obviously, God is speaking through him. That's how he knows it. And Men cannot know those things. And so in verse 2 he says, gather together and hear you, sons of Jacob, and listen to Israel, your father. So you are all my sons, not only one of you. And listen to your father Israel. And then he says about his firstborn, Reuben. Reuben in Hebrew, that means see a son. You are my firstborn, my might, and the beginning of my strength. I did not say, Joseph, you are my firstborn. He could have said it. Because he too was the firstborn. But you see, according to the law, he still had to acknowledge, even at this point, and that was the mind of God, that Reuben should be acknowledged as the firstborn. And he too received a great portion of of inheritance, uh, both in the land of Israel and then later on, in the last days. And so Reuben is the firstborn, my might and the beginning of my strength, the excellency of dignity and the excellency of power. And then, let's go to uh, verse 10. I'm not going to cover that because that's not the purpose of it, to cover the prophecy about Israel, but just to point the fact that the mere fact that God is making it very plain through Jacob, that He's going to bless them in spite of their disobedience, knowing it all in advance, what they were going to go through as Moses later on told them, because God told him, you write this song, that it may be a a testimony against them, and cause the heavens and the earth to be uh, testimony that is witnesses against them that they're going to rebel against me and go into idol idol worship and depart from me and I will have to throw them out of the land. In, in other words, in spite of all those things and the many things that they've done later on also including the the death of uh, Jesus Christ and the responsibility in it and then also all the sins and iniquities and corruption and, uh, and rebellion and all those things that they have uh, committed against him. In spite of all that, God, in essence, is saying, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So, he's, he's giving them the blessings. So, so, this chapter makes it very plain. And Moses is repeating it also later, even though he told them that they were going to be a nation of rebellious people. And so, in verse 10, we read also about uh, the scepter, speaking about that is God himself, in essence, he's telling them something here. And about Judah, he says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet. And that's a, that's an idiom, a Hebrew idiom, between his feet. In other words, uh, biologically speaking, uh, that's how a man produces a child. And uh, so he's using that. In other words, one of his descendants. It is an idiom for a descendant. And so he says, Nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes. The gift of God, speaking about the Messiah. And to him shall be the obedience of the people. In other words, again, with Judah, God will never, ever reject Judah until the Messiah comes. And mind you, 2,000 years ago was only the first time when he came to his own to fulfil a commission and a purpose, not after to that to say, I'm sick and tired of you, I'm going somewhere else. I'm gonna get me another woman. Not at all. Because when he comes a second time and his full glory is the God of the heaven and the earth, sent by the Father, where is he coming? To his own again, to Judah, to the Mount of Olives. And he said very plainly, as we shall read later on in Zechariah, In the tents of Judah shall be saved. First, people like to forget it for their own benefit, so they can continue, you know, living in their own deception and their own lie that God had rejected His people, and now He had chosen us, and now we are the New Testament Church, and now we are this and we are that, and God forgot all about you. Well, as Paul said, and maybe we should remember it constantly when we contrast our own thinking and our own feelings and our own ideas and what we've been said and all the lies that came into our minds in the past many centuries and 2,000 and two years. That God is true. But man is a liar. And that's what Paul is saying. Let God be true. In Romans chapter 4, somewhere there. and And man a liar. In other words, God never lies. And that's What he's repeating again and again and again. He will always be with his people. But Satan likes to cloud the minds of people to make them believe otherwise, to deceive them, the one that deceives the whole world, and then he had his his false church, and the offshoots of that, and there are more offshoots of that, and there are more who are mixed up with it to a degree at least, who have a good measure of the truth, but they are still in Babylon, therefore God says, come out of Babylon. So, it's important to remember all these facts and clear our minds and our hearts and our feelings and come to God with a pure mind and heart and to accept whatever comes from Him directly, not the words of men. And so, we're reading the words of God, not the words of men. And so, that's what he's saying to Judah. And then, of course, later on, he speaks about Joseph and all the awesome blessings that he gave to Joseph. God never forgot Joseph. God never forgot Ephraim or Manasseh or Zebulun or Naphtali or Asher or any one of them because they're all His. Only chosen family that he chose of all the families of the earth, regardless of what man says. Even those who are supposed to be in our midst should know better, and they don't know better. And so, let's continue now uh, to Exodus in chapter uh, 2. Now, the children of Israel are in Egypt, they're in bondage. Later on we shall discuss that. Why are they in bondage? Why are they in slavery? Why are they suffering? Why are they in that state of mind? Why are we in our state of mind today where things are not rosy as it should be? As a whole, humanity, and individually. And so, Israel is in Egypt now. That means in, in a state of slavery, in a state of idolatry, in a state of blindness and ignorance, in a state of sickness and disease, and corruption and fear. And yet, God never, forget, you know, never forgets them and he remembers constantly his covenant to the fathers. And you, as we come to Ezekiel, you shall see how furious and angry God was with his people Israel at this time, while they were in Egypt, while they were in slavery. Why he had to, turn, uh, to send them into that state of mind, or to, to uh, uh, get them into that state of mind, and uh, subject them to this uh, affliction. What father likes to subject his son in that kind of an affliction. And anyway, in spite of that, God never forgot them. God always loved them because His love toward us. A lot of people are saying, well, if God is God of love, how come this happens? And how come that happens? I cannot understand it. And people get angry at Him and point the finger at Him. And yet the love of God is much greater than His hatred against the evil that we commit. If it wasn't, we'll all be dead. We would have been dead a long time ago. And so all always have to, to remember that when it comes to the God that we serve. And we should desire Him with all of our being and heart and always recognize His mercy and love even when things go wrong. He still loves us more than we may imagine or realize and more than the evil that we have committed. And so in Exodus, Exodus chapter 2, in verses 23 and 25, we read this. Now it happened in the process of time that the king of Egypt died, and the children of Israel groaned because of the bondage. Now they've been groaning all the time. And they cried out. And their cry came up to God because of the bondage. So God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And does not mean that all this time he totally forgot about it. All it means, this is an idiom, God remembers. That means that was the appointed time for him to do something. And that's what, uh, when, it's, when you read that statement, often time. And God remembered Abraham, or God remembered Sarah, and God remembered this, or that. That means that was the appointed time for him to act, and that's exactly what God is doing now. So, and so God heard their groaning, he did not reject them totally, even though they were in total idolatry, and rejected him. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. Remember last time we read that God made a covenant not only with Jacob, but also with all of their descendants. And if you can recall with Jacob, we read the account where Jacob brought his whole household because God commanded him and he asked all of them to be cleansed and purged and purified and remove the idols from them and wash their clothes and come pure before him. And it was, in essence, a sort of a rehearsal of Mount Sinai. And that was uh, the first time that it happened, where God now is taking the man, that is, the man of the covenant. before it was only Abraham, directly with him, and then directly with Isaac. And in this case, we see now God is taking Jacob and the entirety of his household. And all of them came and appeared before him when he came down in person and made that covenant with all of them. And so... God remembered these covenants that he made with all of them. And so it says in verse uh, 25 now, And God looked upon the children of Israel, and God acknowledged them. And it's not that he didn't acknowledge them before that, but this is the time when he says, well, enough is enough. Uh, They were punished enough for their sins and iniquities, and it was not only the wickedness of Pharaoh or of Egypt that caused it upon them. That's where the, the children of uh, uh, Judah to this very day in the Jewish community, they look upon that bondage as if Pharaoh was the evil one, which he was, and Israel was the good one, which they weren't. And God made it very plain. The only reason why they were in captivity and the only reason why we suffer, generally speaking, I'm not talking about uh, the unique cases where the righteous even suffers for uh, not committing any inequity, but generally speaking, what God, When the people of God that is, are in punishment or in affliction or in bondage, it is because of their own iniquity. Not because somebody else was evil and just wanted to destroy them. God uses those evil people and raises them and deliberately brings them and causes them to win and to conquer his people and to punish his people and to bring evil on his people so that they would depart from iniquity and evil and come back to him. And that's exactly why they were there. And so God said, okay, punishment is enough. You've learned your lesson, hopefully. And so we read in uh, in chapter 3 now where God is going to do something about it. In chapter 3 and verse 1, we read about Moses. And you know the story of Moses. I got prepared Moses for that very task and commissioned. And uh, earlier, uh, when Moses uh, recognized the fact that he was... Uh, He was chosen by God, of course at this point we don't realize it, but later on in in the book of Acts, chapter 6, Stephen is telling us that, that Moses intervened the first time when he killed the the Egyptian who was smiting the Israelite, thinking that they would realize and understand that God chose him to come and deliver them. In other words, there was quite something happening behind the, the scene there that is not recorded here in Exodus. Or God dealt with Moses even while he was in Egypt. And yet, uh, since Israel was not ready, as someone said, Whom do you think you are? You appoint yourself a judge over us. And so they had to pay the penalty and stick around for another 30 years. for well, that attitude was not only one man. Many of them were of that spirit. And so instead of the 400 years, as God told them, they're going to be sojourners and come out of the land. They had to wait an extra 30 years in bondage because of their evil heart and bondage and uh, bitterness of spirit. So, even when Moses came to them later on, they gave him quite a hard time. They constantly complained and then grumbled and continued to do so even in the wilderness. And that took another 40 years. That means the prophecy that God gave Abraham was delayed by 70 years. Again, because of the iniquity of the children of Israel. Not because God was, was forgetful of his plan, of, or of his word, or that there was something wrong with uh, with his love or affection or mercy for Israel. It was all, in essence, personally speaking, our faults, Not God's fault, it's never his fault. And so God appears to Moses and uh, he gives him the commission. And so we're in chapter 3, and verse 1. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the back of the desert, and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Now, do you think that was just a coincidence? Of course not. God was directing those things. And so, uh, the angel of the Lord, it says, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in the flame of fire, from the midst of the bush. And what does it mean, the angel of the Lord? You You see that oftentimes, the angel of the Lord, so one moment you read the angel of the Lord, and the next moment you read, well, this was God doing it. And uh, some people don't realize that, especially the ones that don't believe and don't understand and don't know the identity of the one that became the Savior of Israel that came 2,000 years ago. As this, the angel of the Lord, who himself was a divine being and therefore has divinity just like our Father in heaven, God, is a divine being. And he's called God. And of course, God, that's, that's, uh, that's not even... Uh, the original name, or not really the name of God. Uh, that's that's uh, something that had to do with uh, languages. It's uh, spread and, and develop and uh, and change. Uh, then people uh, come up with their names for deity, and God, in essence, is sort of a deity. God is not a name of God. He has a name. God is sort of a deity. Uh, that means a divine being. And there is a divine being who is above all, and this angel of the Lord is also a divine being like him, though not as great, Because he himself said, my father is greater than I. And so he is sent by that divine being to deal with his nation, with his people, with the earth. Through him he created all things, as we read many times later on. And so this angel of the Lord is actually uh, God himself. That is, not the one that sent him, the one that became the father... But the one that was sent by him and later on became Jesus Christ. The one that married Israel. The one that talked with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And so that's why God is telling Moses, okay, record now angel of the Lord. But I'm going to let them know who this angel of the Lord is. And in the next verse we will know. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire from the midst of the bush. So he looked and behold, the bush was burning with fire. But the bush was not consumed. Then Moses said, I will turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush does not burn. So when the Lord saw that he turned aside. So now God says, write now the Lord. Don't write now the angel to Moses. In other words, he's making the link between the two. It's the same person. And that's the way God presented it in many, many places. Or introduces himself as the angel of the Lord. Just like Jacob says, and the angel of the Lord appeared to me. And this angel of the Lord said, "I am the god of Bethel," and so you see that happening many times, uh, and we, we shall see later on as we continue after this series uh, to Hagar and to other experiences uh, all of them have noticed in other words, this knowledge of the two beings was an ancient ancient knowledge has always been there until the days of Ezra and Nehemiah, and beyond that that knowledge has been there and and the and the Men of God, the prophets of God, the servants of God knew it. That knowledge never departed from them. And even in the days, even in the days of Jesus Christ, in the days of the rabbis, there were several rabbis, and their records are still with us today. In the Talmud, in the Mishnah, and other uh, writings, where they did know very well about the two beings. But the ones that wanted to hide that knowledge and understanding and prevailed... As God allows, oftentimes, the false prophets to prevail for a good purpose. They are the ones that spread the false knowledge that there is only one being. Yes, there is one deity above all. That's God. That's called God. Even in the New Testament, you read that many, very, many, words, many times, where it says there is one God and one Lord. Or one God and one mediator. And one God and one intercessor. And three of them, there's just one God, and then the other one, who is also a divine being, and he's also on the level of God in the sense that he's a, he's a God being living forever, eternal, and he's the second person. And so that knowledge has always been there, but an awful lot of people are blind. And that's exactly what God told Isaiah go blind these people, so that when they see with their eyes, they're not going to be able to really see. And hear, and they're not going to be able to hear. And they shall not be able to understand. You see? And make the wisdom of their wives perish, he said. And uh, until the end of time. And that's the reason why many people, especially in the Jewish community, don't believe it. But the honest among them, the objective among them, and there are many rabbis, but they don't like to make it known, because it's not popular. When they read the scriptures, they see it very plainly, but they realize it's not a good idea to tell everybody about it, or they'll throw you out, You know, and make fun of you and all that. And people do not want to lose their job. So that's more important to them than to speak the truth. Anyway, this angel of the Lord is God Himself. That's what God is saying. Uh, So when the Lord saw that He turned aside uh, to look, God called to Him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And He said, Here I am. So you see, God makes it very plain. He's the angel of the Lord. He is the Lord. That is Jehovah, and he is Elohim. You see, there is also the one above him who is Elohim. And uh, that is made very plain in many, many places. And so, let's continue with uh, in verse 6. Moreover, he said, I am this angel of the Lord, this Lord, this Elohim, this angel that appeared to Jacob and said, I am the God of Bethel. This angel that Jacob said, as we read earlier in Genesis, where he told Joseph, the God that delivered me, the angel of the Lord that delivered me, speaking about the same person, so this person is saying, in verse 6, moreover he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, that is the Elohim of Abraham, that is the deity, that means, of Abraham, and the deity of Isaac and the deity of Jacob and Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. And this is the angel that appeared to him in the bush. There weren't two of them there. Only one. And the Lord said, and now instead of saying God, which is Elohim, he says Jehovah. And the Lord said, it was translated to Lord, so I'll say Lord, so I don't have to constantly repeat that. But as I said, whenever you see the word Lord, always think about the person, the personal name of God himself. And that is Yehovah. That is eternal. That's all it means. Was, is, will be. Hayah, hove, yihieh. In Hebrew. That's all it means. Eternal. Living forever. And so these, the, the eternal, maybe I should say the eternal instead of the Lord. At least it will be uh, true. The Lord is not. Lord means master. If God wanted to say Nazareth, he would have said Nazareth, which is Adon. But He did not say Adon, He said Jehovah. That means the, Eter- the eternal, ever living. And so the eternal said, I have surely seen the oppression of my people. See, they are still my people, even though they were rotten to the core at this time, rebellious, idol worshippers, and totally forgotten, and mostly forgotten all the laws and the knowledge and understanding of their fathers, and went totally into the idolatry of Egypt, and to this very moment have never totally got it out of their system. And so he says, I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt, and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows, because I am their father. You see, a father knows the sorrows of his son. He may not like you know, the behavior of his son, but he still grieves for him and loves him. And he's still his he son. In verse 8, So I have come down. I came down myself. And you see, he came down to Mount Sinai. So God uh, stood there on the ground at the same level as Moses was, and he was standing there in the bush and speaking to him. So I have come down to deliver them out of the out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up from the land to a good and large land to a land flowing with milk and honey to the places of the Canaanites and so forth, and all the people that live there, for the simple reason, God owns the whole land. And just because those people were, were allowed to stay there for a while, doesn't mean it belongs to them. Even though some of their descendants to this very day says, "Well, the land belongs to us because we're descendants of the Canaanites," and they are, but still, the land belongs to God. It doesn't even belong to Israel. God made it very plain: the land is mine, not yours. You're just sojourners with me. And this is what he tells them. And so, God makes it very plain. He never forsook his people. He made a covenant with them when he was not about to change it, ever. And so in chapter 4, and uh, let's go to chapter 4 and verses 21, where we continue to read, And the Lord, that is eternal, said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, See that you do all those wonders before Pharaoh, which I have put in your hand. That is, the uh, ability to uh, use uh, the rod and to turn it into a snake. And uh, turn the water into blood and, you know, put his hand in his, in his bosom and bring it out as, as uh, white as, uh, you know, lepers. And so, to do all those things, you know, because he's dealing with people who are into witchcraft, into idolatry, into magic, into black magic. Who had de- demonic powers and were able to do those things, and uh, being carnal and human and what they are, you know, they needed to be impressed with something that is even greater than what they had, and that's only what they could think. So God had to use those things. God doesn't always use this kind of uh, of uh, magic or miracles or whatever it may be with others, but when there is a need to, He will. And so, so you do all those things, and you do it before the people, also. But he said, also speaking about Pharaoh, I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go on. The reason is God was going to uh, create such a, a scenario, grand scenario in Egypt, so that all of Egypt and the whole earth would know that the real God is here on this earth delivering his people. And so he had to harden his heart for that purpose, to prolong the agony, so to speak, for the Egyptians So that all of them will come to finally know that they are dealing with the real God. And all their gods are idols and are not true. And so that mainly, specifically, his people would know that all the idols that they were worshipping in Egypt are not God. But only the gods of their fathers. The God of their fathers is the real God and the one that sent him. And so in verse 22, Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is My son, my firstborn. You see, in spite of the fact that he was in idolatry, rejected God, despised God and his laws and all that, nevertheless, he's still the son of God. Israel is my son, my firstborn. In other words, my firstborn nation among many to come through Israel, not apart from Israel, Israel will never be rejected. Israel is chosen to be firstborn for that purpose. To be the light of all the nations. And what God said he will do in the beginning, he will finish. And nothing in between will ever change. And that's what God says. I am the God of Jacob, I change not. And well, Some people don't believe that. And so they call God a liar in essence. When well, they are saying that God rejected his people and chosen us. And God rejected his church and now he chosen us. Now we are the church. That's an absolute lie. And so, he said, Israel is my son, and I'm the eternal, and he's my firstborn. And the implications are eternal. I mean, you can see what God had in mind as you read down the road in the prophets. And even when you come to the last chapter of the book of Revelation, the last book, that was inspired and recorded by a servant of God, inspired by God himself. In this case, it was this very person that appeared to Moses, that appeared to John, and told him to record all those things that are in Revelation. And from the beginning until the end, you see the, the plan of God. Or in Ezekiel, you read about the coming new, uh, new Jerusalem, a new temple. where God is going to dwell in it. The Eternal is going to be there. The Messiah that descends on the Mount of Olives. The Lord, the Eternal, Yehovah, is going to dwell in it. And the children of Israel, a part of every tribe, is going to live in that city of Jerusalem because their purpose is to be the educators of humanity. All this, The whole world is going to come to Jerusalem. That's why it says, For the law shall go forth out of Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And that city has twelve gates. And on every gate, a name of one of the tribes of Israel. And that's not the end of the story. As we go into the new Jerusalem that will come down from heaven, the Jerusalem of God, where the Father himself will descend and be there with the other divine being that became Jesus Christ. And that city again will have twelve gates. And what are the names of the gates? but the names of the twelve tribes of Israel. So, did God ever reject his people? Did he ever have any intention of rejecting his people in spite of what they've done to him? Did he ever have any intention of rejecting his church? And choosing someone else instead? Never. The Bible makes it very plain from the beginning uh, until the end. But as Christ said, The one that spoke to Moses and the one that inspired John. Many shall come in my name, claiming to be ministers of Christ, teachers of the truth, and shall deceive many. And that's why God says, come out of Babylon. Too many of you are still in Babylon, though you have an awful lot of truth. And then even there, the foundations of that holy city that will descend from heaven, the very foundations of this city that will, uh, will have twelve foundations that will be right next to the gates. At the bottom of the gate, actually, of every tribe of Israel. At the top, you will you will find the name. At the top of the gate, the name of one of the tribes of Israel. And at the bottom, you're going to find the name of one of the apostles. The twelve messengers and disciples and witnesses. Just like all of Israel ought to be witnesses of. The God that spoke to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and married Israel. The God that spoke to Moses. The God that spoke to, to his people in person as he lived in the flesh among them. And why is he there? Because every single one of them is going to rule over that particular tribe of Israel. You see, God never rejected his church. And his church is Israel. Israel. And all those that God is calling in the past uh, 2,000 years and those that were called before that are to be grafted into that commonwealth of Israel that God himself prepared, that is, in detail, all his plans from the beginning until the end. And he's not about to change it, mid course. But the great church, so to speak, of Revelation 17 and all those that follow here and others have come to the knowledge of the truth and still are in it to a degree. And the false church, they believe all the other lies, that God rejected his people. And they are no longer his people, and they are lost. And who cares about them, as some people have said. And many tried to destroy them as much as they could. At least the people that they recognize as being the people of Israel. Had they known that the others are also Israelites, they probably would have tried to destroy them too. And some of them did, like the Inquisition. Spanish Inquisition, where they went also after the Israelite tribes in Europe, and, and destroyed many of them, actually. So we have to remember all these things from God's point of view, and, and not men's point of view, and then understand what it means that we're in Babylon. And then God makes it very plain, also in the calling of, a, of very unique people that will be with him, and we don't know exactly the details, and why is it that way? But he's speaking about it in the book of Revelation of calling 12,000 of every tribe of Israel and he's naming every single one of them by name. Even though people like to spiritualize that. And say, well, that's speaking about the church. Of course it's speaking about the church, but what church? The one that claims to be or the one that is really from God's point of view? Or God makes it very plain. Well, we'll come to that that later on as we we get to those books. And so let's continue now with uh, Exodus chapter 6 and verses uh, 2 and 9. Where we read, and God spoke to Moses, that is, Elohim spoke to Moses. And said to him, I am the Eternal. I am Yehovah. I appeared to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob as El Shaddai. Not God Almighty. God and El would be fine because God is a deity and El is a deity. But Almighty is Shaddai, El Shaddai. I don't know why people have to, uh, need to always pervert the scriptures, even when they know better. But by my name, Lord, that is eternal, Jehovah, I was not known to them. Well, he didn't choose to for whatever reason. Uh, and he says in verse 4, I have also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land of their pilgrimage, in which there were strangers. So what if their descendants totally rebelled and departed from me and went into captivity because of that and believed in idolatry and all those things? Does that mean I'm going to change my covenant? Never. And what if they have done it later on? Am I going to change my covenant? And what if they have killed me later on? Am I going to change my covenant with them? Never. Because it does not depend on their actions. This is what counts. It depends on the fact that God is God and He does not change. And He loved the Father. And He swore. And He made a covenant. And He's not a liar. And He's not going to change. This is what it depends on. Not our actions. If God's mercy or grace or forgiveness depended... Oh in our actions, if his punishment depended on our actions, all of us would have been dead long, long time ago. So we have to remember that. People allow themselves to be deceived when they should not be. And so he makes it very plain. And he said, I have established my covenant with them to give them the land. And verse 5, And I have also heard the groaning of the children of Israel, whom the Egyptians keep in bondage, and I have remembered my covenant. I will never forget it. Therefore, he says, say to the children of Israel, I am the the Eternal. I am Jehovah. And Moses went and told them that the deity that we worship, the God of our fathers, his name is Jehovah. And all of Israel that came out of Egypt knew that his name is Jehovah. And all of them called Him by that name from that time on until way, way, way beyond the days of Ezra and Nehemiah, until the rabbinic age that said, and for good reasons, for sincere reasons, look, many of you have just taken the, Lord, the, the name of, of God in vain, and it's best that you don't do it anymore. And besides, also being influenced by the Babylonish concept and practice and custom that in order not to desecrate the name of the deity, let's use a euphemism, a different name. And that's exactly what they've done under the Babylonish inspiration and customs. And also their good intentions and sincerity. But you know how the sincerity of man is. It's not necessarily God's form of sincerity or good intentions. That's why many good intentions lead you to hell. To destruction. To the grave. When it's too late then. So a good intention or sincerity is not good enough often times. An awful lot of the pagans that sacrificed their children to their, to their gods, you know, had good intentions and were sincere. What does that mean? That doesn't mean that they were right. That's what that uh, doesn't mean. And so, God made it very plain, and Israel knew it. And so, this is what he told him: You go tell the people of Israel who I am and what my name is. Therefore say to the children of Israel, I am Yehovah. I am the Eternal. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, I will rescue from their bondage. for see the I, I, I here many times. In other words, in this couple of verses, you're going to see the, the, the format, so to speak, of redemption. I will bring you from out the burdens of the Egyptian. One, I will rescue you from their bondage. Two, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgment. Three, I will take you as my people... Four, I will be your God. Five, and when I do all those things, then you shall know that I am, and not all those idols that you have there, the Lord your God, who brings you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And that's not the end. He continues, And I will bring you into the land. Six, which I swore to give to the fathers Isaac and Jacob, and I will give it to you as a heritage. Seven. I am the eternal. You see the concept of redemption? Seven stages. One prece- one after the other. Until, when all that is done and total redemption has occurred, then you will know that I am the Lord. And so that will happen also in the future when God goes through the process of redemption through this manner also. And this is going to happen very soon, hopefully in the next, who knows, 10, 20, 30 years, maybe less than that. And this is what God is telling his people. And so Moses spoke thus to the children of Israel. But they did not heed Moses. Why? Because of anguish of spirit and cruel bondage. You see? It's too good to be true. No faith. They don't believe it. How do I know? And so God is going to prove to prove it to them. And prove it to them. And prove it to them. And they still rebelled against Him. And they still do to this very day. You see? Until God goes beyond that. Beyond that. Redemption, not only from without, but also redemption from within. When He pours His Spirit upon all flesh, writes His laws in their hearts and their minds, which He will, as He said in the future, speaking of Israel, because He is never going to leave them, nor reject them, then they will truly know, when they have that kind of faith that he's going to plant in them, that He is Yehovah, the Eternal, Of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, and of every single one of them, who in spite of them, and what they did to him, and against him, he never, ever rejected them. Contrary to all lies, by anyone. Even, unfortunately, some in our own midst. And so let's go now to Exodus, chapter 19, verses 3 and 6. We are bypassing the method that we just read about of deliverance, of redemption and Israel is being brought back now to a meeting with God himself. In other words, a repetition here on a grander scale of the, let's say, the rehearsal that happened earlier in one sense between Jacob and his household as he brought them Again, out of idolatry, and made them wash their clothes, and brought them before God. And God descended on the earth, and He stood there in person, and spoke to Jacob, and to all of his household, in person, and made a covenant with them. And here we see a repetition. And there are going to be other repetitions, not only of the coming of the Messiah, but also in the second resurrection, when all of Israel is going to be brought back from the grave. And God will make a covenant with them again. In other words, the process is uh, thousands of years in the making. It happens again and again until it is fully complete. And then, when that is complete, only then, the God that created us, and dwelt with us, and married us, and delivered us, and died for us, and came back to redeem us again, this God, once everyone is under control, so to speak, all made in the image and likeness of God, physically and spiritually. Then he turns all the rain to the one that sent him, the Father, who will come down with heavenly Jerusalem. And then all shall be in God, and God shall be in all. And that's the ultimate purpose and the fulfillment of Genesis 1.26. Let us make men in our image and in our likeness. That was just the beginning uh, of the story. But the whole plan was in essence in it. And so in Exodus chapter 19, verses 3 and 6, this is what we read. And Moses went up to God, and the Eternal called to Him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the children of Israel. In other words, in the Bible, you oftentimes see this repetition, poetic repetition of the same thing in two ways. And you have seeing what I did to the Egyptians. None if you can say, well, I wasn't there. And how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. See, to myself. Because you are my people and I'm your God. I'm going to be your husband now. I'm your creator. I'm your savior. I'm your deliverer. I'm your redeemer, the redeemer of Israel. And now, therefore, verse 5, if, you will indeed obey my voice and keep my commandment, that is my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people, for all the earth is mine. So he's making this specific family of men that came from Jacob, a, a grandson of Abraham, a special people to himself above all the others on the face of the earth, but for a purpose, to bring all the others into the same kind of a relationship. And we shall continue next time. This is again Mordecai Joseph saying, greeting to all of God's people. The preceding message was taken from the worldwide website at address www.biblestudy.org. This site is sponsored by Barnabas Ministries. Bible Study. You have questions? The Bible has answers.